Uh, maybe we'll read a few verses of Scripture at this point. Turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Let's read from verse 25. John chapter 19, verse 25. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation, should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that they, their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then came the soldier and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith truth, that ye might believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Amen. We know that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now, my text tonight is taken from John 19 and the verse 30. It reads, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. And I want us tonight to consider the purpose of the cross. Now, in past weeks, we've been thinking about the cross work of the Lord Jesus. Not merely the placing of the cross, but the person on the cross. Not just the symbol of the cross, but the suffering of the cross. Not just the wood of the cross, but the work of the cross. Now, we've already looked at the subject, the plan of the cross, and we discovered that the cross was planned by the triune God from all eternity. That first and foremost, the cross work of Christ was designed by God the Father's sovereign hand. 
The cross was not an afterthought. It was not part of some sort of secondary plan by God. It had nothing to do with tragedy or failure, but it was all part of God's sovereign plan from all eternity. And before cruel, sinful hands had laid hold upon Christ and sought to do their worst upon him, the Father's sovereign hand was already upon him, ordaining his cross work, for it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And do remember that Christ indeed is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And then last week we looked at the pain of the cross from Isaiah chapter 53 verses 3 and 5. We focused on the physical and the mental and the spiritual sufferings of Christ. Now remember death by crucifixion was one of the most violent, painful Brutal forms of capital punishment that the world has ever known. Crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of criminals and the slaves of society. There's nothing kind and gentle or compassionate about crucifixion. Every aspect of crucifixion was designed to heighten the agony of the sufferer. Everyone that was crucified was stripped naked, exposed to open shame and spectacle. On the tree they were taunted and slandered and abused. You only have to think of the bodily pain that the sufferer would have endured. Every muscle and sinew and fiber and nerve was impacted. Think of the intense heat. Think of the intense thirst. The flesh was torn. The body was soaked and stained with blood. A bone or two might have been out of joint. And no mercy nor compassion was shown by the perpetrators of the act of crucifixion. Crucifixion was a long, slow, lingering death. And many who were crucified, of course, their mouths were full of bitterness towards the perpetrators, inflicting this indescribable pain. And also their mouths were full of blasphemy, especially against and toward the God of heaven. And if you remember, we read in the scriptures when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, he was crucified with two thieves, one on either side of him. And we read in Matthew 27, verse 44, the thieves cast the same in his teeth. When he was taunted and slandered and abused, the thieves cast the same in his teeth. Yet the amazing thing is this, that when the Lord Jesus was on the cross, experiencing all this indescribable pain, experiencing this horror of death by crucifixion, suffering, as I've said, at the hands of cruel, bloodthirsty men. The amazing thing is this. He never uttered a sinful word against them. He never entertained an evil thought in his heart against them. In fact, what he did do was this. He uttered seven wonderful cries from the cross. Seven lovely statements that's full of grace and mercy and truth. Seven cries that were really statements of of victory and majesty and, and tranquility. His cry was not the words of an embittered man. 
His cry was not the words of a man who had lost his purpose for life. His words were not the words of a king who had suffered a great defeat and was now in a state of weakness. His cries were the words of a mighty conqueror. The words of the mediator of the new covenant. And the sixth cry is recorded for us in our text. John 19 and 30. Think of the words, it is finished. One word in the Greek New Testament. Tetelestai. It means done. It means performed. It means paid. It means complete. And as he said these words, I want you to notice, if you look at the text, he was in absolute control. What do we read in John 19, verse 30? And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. What do those words, and he bowed his head, mean? Does it not mean that his head was erect all this time? That as he experienced all the shame and sorrow and suffering and slander and and spikes of the cross, Christ was still in complete control of his life. And he utters, it is complete. It is performed. It is paid. And the moment he said that, he, he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. In other words, he demissed his soul and spirit. We could ask the question tonight, what does it mean when he said it is finished? Did he mean his sufferings? Did he mean his life of humiliation was now over? Did he mean that his hour and his day had come to an end? Well, it does mean these things, but much more. I believe that he's in absolute control that even at the moment of death is subject to him. I believe the people expected him to live much longer. Remember, he's age 33. They expected him to take a long time to die. They, They sent the soldiers to break his legs because it was a high Sabbath. But Christ had died already. He was in full control. And just before he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. He made this tremendous statement, it is finished. And I believe that sixth cry was really a cry of accomplishment. It was a cry that reveals something about the purpose of his cross. And having already thought of the plan that God planned it from all eternity, and having already thought of the pain, a horrible death of crucifixion, I want us to think for a few minutes of the purpose of, of the cross. The purpose of the cross is threefold. I want you to think of the fulfillment of a promised work. Think of the words now finished. Remember, it means done, complete, performed, paid in full, or made an end. Over there in John 17 and verse 4 in his high priestly prayer. During that last week of his life on earth, holy week as we called it, he he prayed this, I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. You see, in eternity past, in what we call theologically the covenant of redemption, 
there was a meeting between God the Father and God the Son. And God the Son undertook to do a work on behalf of sinners to secure and guarantee their redemption. And in that covenant of redemption, he made a big promise. He promised to fulfill the work that was necessary to secure and guarantee redemption. There was a lot involved. He promised to come into the world to be born of the Virgin Mary. He promised to take a human body and have a reasonable soul. He promised to be subject to life in that body. He promised to live a life of perfect obedience to the law of God in that body. Remember, that was something Adam and Eve had failed to do in the Garden of Eden. As it was said yesterday at the funeral for Gene Arnold, it's not the apple in the tree that was the problem. It was the pear in the ground. Adam and Eve, remember, they failed to obey the Lord in the covenant of works. The Lord Jesus, in that covenant of redemption, promised to die a sacrificial atoning death on the tree. He promised to stand as the sinner's substitute, surety, sin-bearer, sacrifice and sin offering. And he would do that on behalf of all who would trust him. And he would bear the guilt and punishment that was due to every sinner. He promised to come into the world and satisfy divine justice and holiness. He promised to fulfill all the demands of God's holy law. He promised to be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, now, this was an awesome work Christ promised to undertake and to perform. It was not something that was attempted by a mere angel. It was not something that was attempted by a mere man. Christ understood the terms of reference within the great covenant of redemption. I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. And what does finish the work mean? It means the suffering of death and the cross by crucifixion. It means suffering the reproach and derision of men. Remember, he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. His suffering involved being forsaken by his heavenly father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? His suffering meant the greatest bodily agony imaginable. His suffering meant that crown of thorns, that scourging of the whip, that spitting in the face, that plucking off the hair. It meant being stripped naked. It's an open spectacle for everybody to see that walked past. It meant being cursed. Do you know what the Bible tells us there in the book of Galatians? In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, quoting the book of Deuteronomy, it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. And you see, the Lord Jesus, young people, didn't stop short of this work. He didn't pull back from it. He, he didn't rebel. He, he didn't say, no, Father. He, he didn't refuse. He didn't say, well, I can't do that, or, or I won't do that. He fulfilled his word. He was faithful in completing this work. 
Did you know when he was born, whenever he was eight days old, and he was brought into the temple as a child, old Simeon said this about him in Luke chapter 2. He says there in verse 34 and verse uh, 35, he said this, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, and the thoughts of many hearts shall be revealed. Whenever he was twelve, according to Luke 2, 49, he said, Wist ye not I must be about my father's business? They were back in Jerusalem. And he was gone from his father and mother a day's journey before they discovered he was missing. And that's where they found him in the temple, debating with the scribes and the Pharisees. Whenever he was 30 years old, he said to the woman at the well, whenever his disciples came back and they realized that he hadn't eaten any food, he said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He said in John 9 verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, for the night cometh and no man can work. You see, the Lord Jesus never shied away from this work. The Lord Jesus did not make a promise and then pull away at the end and leave it unfulfilled. The Lord Jesus did not make a promise and then stop short of doing this work. Every step, all the way, the Bible says he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. We could really say from the cradle to the cross. Uh, Turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 50. It says in verse 5, the Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair, I hid not my face from spitting or for shame and spitting. You see, these words refer to Christ. And they draw us not only to Christ, but Christ and the cross. You see, he pledged himself as a true faithful servant to finish the work. It was as if he was saying, I will finish, I will complete, I will make an end, I will pay in full all the work that God the Father has given to me. And he was not rebellious to that. He did not turn back. Could I make a suggestion tonight that he had a passion for this work? As we read in the scriptures, he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He was full of earnestness. There was a match in his zeal about his spirit as regards this work. He looked upon it as a labor of love. He devoted himself entirely to it. He had a preciousness about this work. He was not dragged, kicking and screaming to the cross. He was not forced. There was no unwillingness in the part of Christ. This was voluntary. This was particular. This was necessary. This was joyful. He he not only had a passion for this work and a preciousness for this work, but he had a pleasure for this work. The Bible tells us who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He had joy in his heart as he completed, fulfilled, paid in full redemption's price. Young people, he could have called 10,000 angels to rescue him. 
He could have dethroned Pilate and Herod. He could have destroyed the soldiers who were crucifying. He could have dealt a death blow to the crowds that were shouting and baying for his blood. But he didn't. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Can I just make the suggestion tonight? That if he did this for us. The fulfillment of a promised work. And he was not rebellious and didn't turn back from it. Then could we doubt his faithfulness to us in any aspect of his work in our lives? If he finished the work for us, the work of redemption, if it's now accomplished and been applied, then what about his work of salvation in us? Saving us. Saving us from a life of sin. Does the Bible not say that he will perfect that which concerneth us? See, if he's promised to fulfill this work, then he's also promised not to fail us, forsake us, or forget us. If he's promised to redeem us, will he reject us? If he's promised to save us, will he, will he scatter us? The answer is no. And if he did this for us, then could we not attempt to do something for him? C.T. Studd said, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And while I'm not scolding you tonight, I, I know your darkness and your difficulties. I know many have problems and pressures in their life. But is there not a danger that we're at ease in Zion? That we have lost a vision for his work. That his work is not the priority that it ought to be in our lives. That we so easily, instead of living for him, live for ourselves and do our thing, irrespective of him. We, we, we live for sin. We, we refuse to put him first in our life. King of my life, I crown thee now. But he's not our king. And, and that's provable when it comes to our time. That, that's provable when it comes to our talent that he has given to that, That's provable when it comes to our tithing. Are we not quickly thrown off track? Are, are we not so easily tempted to stop living for him, to stop loving him, to stop being loyal to him? But let's think tonight. The purpose of his cross, what it did involve, the fulfillment of a promised work. And he was not rebellious nor turned back from that promise, but fulfilled it in full, in every detail. Then if he did that, could we ever doubt his faithfulness in any aspect of his work for us or in us? If he did that for us, what can we not attempt to do for him and his name? All to Jesus, the hymn writer said, I surrender, I Surrender all. Have you surrendered all to Christ? Have you asked the Lord not only to save you, but asked the Lord to help you to live for him? I want you to think secondly, if you look back at our text, it's also the fulfillment of a perfect work. I've already told you the word finished means complete. Complete. Performed, paid, 
made an end, done. All these synonyms apply to that one word, finished. Now, when the Lord Jesus said, it is finished, what was complete, what was done, what was performed, what was paid in full, what did he make an end of? Let me suggest this. The Lord Jesus in himself fulfilled all the Old Testament types and shadows. When you read the 39 books of the Old Testament, it's all full of animal sacrifices. It's full of altars, information about the tabernacle and the temple, its priesthood and its furnishings. And you also have to think about the role and responsibility of the high priest of Israel, Aaron in particular, but all the rest of the high priest and every other priest and the animal sacrifices and the shedding of blood. And I want to tell you, they're all typified. They're all mere types of Christ in his person and work. And when he said, it is finished, he fulfilled all the Old Testament types and shadows in himself. That's the first thing. The Lord Jesus also perfectly fulfilled all that was necessary for the redemption of sinners. He kept the law of God perfectly in all its precepts. He said, which of you convinceth me of sin? He said, the prince of this world cometh of nothing in me. He also has written of Christ that he did no sin, he knew no sin, in whom was no sin. The law of God was fully fulfilled in its jot and tittle in every detail by the life and witness of Christ. The law of God was not only perfectly fulfilled in its precepts, but the law of God was perfectly fulfilled in its penalty. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It was all fulfilled to the latter. There was nothing overlooked. No detail was neglected. And as the law of God was filled perfectly in its precepts and in its penalty, God's holy justice was satisfied. There was no other substitute that could undertake to do this work. There was no other surety. A surety as someone who owes a debt. The law had been broken. There was a debt to the broken law that had to be fulfilled. Every sinner, an offspring of Adam, came short of fulfilling that debt. But Christ paid that debt in full. There was no other sacrifice. There was no other sin bearer. There was no other savior. Turn over there tonight to the book of Hebrews. Look with me at Hebrews um, chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's read together verse 24. It says, For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world have he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And over in chapter 10, verse 9, we read, Then saith he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. And we read in verse 
11, but every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And you see, that's one of the reasons, of course, why we reject the teaching of Roman Catholicism whenever it argues that the Mass itself is a sacrifice for sin. You see, the work is finished. The sacrifice has been offered and accepted. And it's only one sacrifice for sin. And it can't be added to. It, it, it can't be perfected. Christ has done this work, but he's done it once for all. And those who preach salvation by works, a, a works righteousness, have forgotten that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. Those who preach salvation by the church forget Acts 4 and verse 12, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There are those who argue that there's no salvation outside the church. But salvation's never in the church. It's only in Christ. And there's those who preach salvation by church attendance and by rites and ceremonies of the church and the efforts and works of our own hands. What's they saying? When you say that you're saved by the works of your own hands or the rites and ceremonies of the church or church attendance, you're saying that Christ's work is not enough, that, that you need something more, that, that Christ is not sufficient. But I want to tell you tonight that all you need is found in Christ because he not only fulfilled all the Old Testament types and shadows, but he fulfilled all that was necessary for the redemption of sinners. All we need is found in Jesus Christ. He alone is sufficient for every soul to trust him. The Lord Jesus perfectly fulfilled all that was necessary as the ground and basis of our assurance for salvation. See, our salvation rests in Christ, not in this church. It doesn't rest in you or me. We worship a, a living Savior but also a complete and fulfilled Savior. He has completed the work. It's Christ that died. The Bible asks the question, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, that is rather risen again. And the finished work depends on Christ. Not 99% in him and 1% in me, 100% in Christ. In Christ alone. And the Lord Jesus perfectly fulfilled all that was necessary for a life of power and victory. We have power to live for Christ, power to die for Christ. And it's all been secured by him on the cross. Not only pardoned from sin's penalty, but the power of sin broken. The hymn writer said he breaks the power of cancel sin. He sets the prisoner free. Over there in the book of Galatians, it was the Apostle Paul that, that said there in Galatians chapter 1 and in the uh, verse 4, he made this statement again connected into the cross of Christ. He says, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Again, we read in the book of Titus, in Titus chapter 2 and verse uh, 14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. 
See, there's a practical value to the cross. Our theology, what we believe, must affect our behavior. Our theology is the outworking of our morality. Here's one of the great motivations to a life of holiness, a life of power and victory. The Lord Jesus has fulfilled all that's necessary for that life of power and victory to be lived. He not only saves us from sin's penalty, but he saves us through sin's power. He takes the love of sinning out of our hearts. Therefore, we can't be worldly. Therefore, we can't live a life of sin willfully and deliberately. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. One final thing. It was also the fulfillment of a performed work. You see, when the Lord Jesus died in the tree, his death was one of the greatest victories that this world has ever seen. The battle of the ages was being fought out there. And Christ performed the most glorious victory and triumph that this world has ever seen. Remember, Isaiah 53 said, He shall save the traveling of his soul and shall be satisfied. Remember in Genesis 3 and 15, God told the devil, Thou shalt bruise his heel and he shall bruise thy head. See, Christ is the seed of the woman. He identifies as the seed of the woman. Galatians 3.16 tells us the seed which is Christ. And by his death on the cross, he he not only defeated sin, but he defeated Satan. He he defeated death. There's the death of death and the death of Christ. Hebrews 2 and 4, if you're subject to bondage, if you have fear of death, fear of the judgment, well, well, there's victory in Christ. If you're afraid of the grave, If you're afraid of hell, then you'll find it in Christ. Listen to what Colossians 2.14 tells us. The Apostle Paul says this, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Or in himself. Because he said it is finished. This promised work that he came to do. This work that he perfected in himself. He actually performed it in time. So so we could talk about the triumph of the cross. It was not a disaster. It was not a defeat. It was the greatest declaration of victory. You can delight in this performed work. And this performed work has become the very basis for much of our um, hymnology. The cross is mentioned in many of our hymns. It becomes the basis of our ministry. It's central to the Bible. It's the instrument that brings glory and honor to God. It's the instrument that brings judgment into the world. Because by the cross, sinners can be saved or sentenced. And it's the instrument to accomplish God's will in drawing sinners to salvation. And the proof that the work was performed and satisfied and acceptable to God is the empty tomb. The message that we preached on this morning. Jesus Christ is alive. So what was the purpose of the cross? It was to fulfill a promised work. 
It was to fulfill a perfect work that was necessary. And it was to fulfill a performed work. And if we could understand that, that would help us to understand a bit better of what the cross work of Christ was all about. May the Lord take these few thoughts this evening and bless it to you. I trust that the Holy Spirit will apply the word and bring help and encouragement to many at this time.